Let's open the Word of God, please, to Acts chapter 8, verse 26. 26. One of the major objections that is being used against Christianity today that you're going to see on hundreds, thousands of websites, it's going to be on ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, most college campuses from both the professors and the students alike, is the claim that Christianity is exclusive and it's narrow. And it's bigoted, and it's racist, and it's sexist. And therefore, uh, Christianity is not just untrue, but it's evil. I mean, at best, it's backward, and at worst, it's very repressive. Now, the reality is all such claims are false, and they're hypocritical. Uh, because, in fact, as we're going to see in our passage in Acts today, the the true New Testament church is and always has been mega-inclusive. That's a picture uh, several years ago now in, taken in uh, Amman, Jordan, where a group of master's students were taking a course on soteriology. And that's in the middle of the Arab world, the Muslim world. And it's a very unusual picture to see women uh, taking part as co-equals in higher education in the Arab world because that basically doesn't happen in that culture except it happens at the only graduate-level Christian theological seminary in the Arab world. happens in Amman, Jordan because of the Christian influence. So we're going to see that even though I'm sure many individual Christians and some renegade Christian groups have been racist, uh, have been uh, sinful in those kind of areas, the true New Testament church, I mean, Baptists who believe and Methodists who believe and Charismatics who believe and non-Charismatics who trust Christ and Calvinists who trust in Christ and Arminians and whatever I am this week, I think it's a Calminian, uh, who trust Jesus Christ. Uh, the New Testament church, the true New Testament church is always has been mega inclusive because the gospel of Jesus and the grace of God is targeted and transcends all human colors countries and cultures so let's pray we'll be teachable to god's word really a neat passage here in in acts i remember as a little boy in sunday school being taught about this uh christian that talks to this guy in a chariot and all this stuff and i was into chariots you know so i always thought that was really neat and i uh, just love this passage about philip the evangelist and the ethiopian eunuch so and i think we'll see some things maybe you haven't seen before so let's pray we'll be teachable. Let's pray uh, for those who serve and protect us. And I'm thinking of the active military, our peace officers, and our firefighters. And uh, Wolfgang, Dig, if you would, uh, lead us in prayer in that direction. Amen. Well, this is Father's Day. And in connection with Father's Day and the fact that the twins, the older twins, had their third birthday party yesterday, there's... Lincoln and Vivian, they were celebrating their third birthday yesterday. And there's uh, their two new twin sisters and Debbie. Is that Eloise? Okay, 50-50 chance. That's Eloise. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's Violet. And that's Eloise. And I'm just telling you, I can't tell them apart yet, but I'm working on it. But I can tell Lincoln and Vivian apart. <laughs> so those four are all siblings. And then that's Jamie's son, uh, What's his name again? Cooper. 
And uh, that's Peter. And they came down from Tulsa. So we had uh, a birthday celebration, a Father's Day celebration. And people have been wondering. I think it's the first time we've all been together since they've been born right at the same time. So that's a very historical picture. And so since this is Father's Day and I just kind of gener- generated some positive feelings toward me as a grandfather, uh, I want you to indulge me as we warm up your capacity for abstract thinking. I want to tell you the story of the uh, the pastor and the false teeth. Um, this older pastor, a lot older than myself, uh, had lost almost all of his teeth. He only had like five left in his head, and, and they had some problems. So the dentist said, look, we're going to have to remove all the rest of your teeth and then fit you for full dentures. So you have full dentures. And uh preacher wasn't crazy about that, but he did it, and they pulled his teeth, and uh, they fit him for dentures. But an amazing thing happened because the first Sunday after he got his new dentures, he, his sermon only lasted for five minutes, which was interesting, you know. And then the next Sunday after that, his sermon was his usual sermon. It was like 50 minutes. But on the third Sunday after he got his new dentures, he got in the pulpit, Nancy, and he preached for five hours. And, you know, this was a Baptist church, so there was, uh, you know, uh, alarm bells going off, and they had a congregational meeting that night uh, for the pastor to explain himself, or as Ricky Ricardo used to say, to explain himself. And uh, so he got up there and said, you know, I, I hope you guys will show me some grace, but it's a perfectly understandable explanation for this situation because uh, the first Sunday after I got my new teeth, my, my uh, gums were so sore I can only speak for five minutes. And then the next week, uh, my gums, Russell, felt pretty good. felt like normal. I was kind of adjusting to the new uh, dentures and stuff. So I gave you my usual uh, 50-minute sermon. But uh, this morning, uh, when I had that five-hour sermon, what happened was I got up extra early for some extra prayer. And when I was in the bathroom, I reached in the wrong uh, glass jar, and I got my wife's dentures and put them in. And when I got up here... I couldn't stop talking. So, yeah, that's what happened. Okay, now that uh, our capacity for abstract thinking is working, uh, let's read our passage. Uh, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. And first we're going to see a holy hitchhiker on a desert road, Philip's divine encounter with an Ethiopian VIP. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up, he's in Samaria, remember from last week, and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He's the Secretary of Treasury of Ethiopia, big shot. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning. He was on that desert road going back south toward his home in Africa, returning and sitting in the chariot. And he was reading out loud, which was common in the ancient world, the prophet Isaiah. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. So that's the holy hitchhiker in the beginning of this encounter. Now verses 30 to 35. An honest seeker's question about the scripture. All right. What and who is Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament talking about? Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And said do you understand what you are reading? 
And the Ethiopian said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? That's where Bible teachers come in, right? Uh, And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in his Lexus chariot. Now, the passage which the Ethiopian was reading was, in fact, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, as we're going to see, Bailey, is his prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus. And it's really a a great passage, perfect for ending reading. And uh, we read, uh, he was led as a sheep to slaughter, Jesus was, the, the Messiah, the Savior. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth? The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this? Who's he talking about in Isaiah 53? Talking about himself or somebody else? And of course, he's talking about the Messiah, right, Jan? Who's Jesus Christ. And boy, as an evangelist, I mean, I tell you what, it's like a two-inch putt to win the U.S. Open. I mean, you can't miss it. A guy's reading Isaiah 53 and saying, who's he talking about? In the aftermath of the death and resurrection of Christ, Philip just can't believe how lucky he is. No such thing as luck, right? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with Isaiah 53 and then bouncing around a lot of Old Testament passages from a New Testament perspective, he explained who Jesus was. It's all about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Verse 36, we go to the happy Christian's affirming his faith he has not just happiness but joy and they're different as we'll explain but look at verse 36 so as they went along the road as and after philip has explained who jesus was to him and he's clearly believed they came to some water and there is some water along that desert road just northeast of gaza the wadi el hesi is normally full of water it's kind of like this pond down here just before you get the osage Man, that baby was so sad for so long, and now it goes further back than ever, man. It's awesome. Um, so, Philip, uh, excuse me. Look, so verse 36. So, they go, go along the road. They saw some water on the side of the road as they're approaching Gaza. Uh, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered him and said, I believe. Jesus is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the resurrected Savior. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up, up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. So he went from happiness to joy, and they aren't the same thing, but they can be overlapping. Uh, but Philip found himself at Azotus on the Mediterranean coast going north, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities till he came to Caesarea, which was his home, or at least he made it his home, based on some stuff we're going to see later. All right, we're looking at the book of Acts, Zane, and the book of Acts has 28 chapters, and we're going to finish the eighth chapter today, Lord willing, and we're going to use this, this sentence, uh, Jesus is alive as head of his bride, as a memory device, okay, Kathy? So it's kind of it's hard to remember 28 chapters, but you can remember the saying, Jesus is alive as head of his bride, right, Blanche? You got that. And every one of those letters stands for uh, a seminal event in each chapter. So Jesus is, let's start with that. Uh, J stands for chapter 1, Jesus ascends to heaven. That's basically what chapter 1 is about. What happens in chapter 2? 
10 days later. The establishment, the beginning of the New Testament church. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, 12 apostles, 120 believers in Jerusalem. Boom, New Testament church starts. We go from Old Testament Israel to the New Testament church. What happens in chapter 3? Peter and John heal salvation of a lame beggar who's been begging in front of the temple for decades to validate uh, what they're saying. And that would have had a big impact on a lot of people to clear that beggar out of the way. Uh, U stands for unleashing a persecution. What happens? Michelle, Peter and John get arrested, held overnight. Then they're kind of uh, talked to. The Sanhedrin says, look, don't tell anybody about this. Don't teach or preach about Jesus to anybody and we'll let you go. And Peter says, look, uh, we're going to have to keep talking just so you'll know, just respectfully, sir, we can't obey that order. But they arrest them and then let them go. And so it's the first beginning, the unleashing of persecution. It gets much worse. Chapter 5, sin in the church. Internal corruption does as much or more damage than external persecution of the church. And we see the Ananias and Sapphira and they're lying about money and motives and all kinds of bad stuff like that. Chapter 6, Jesus is, Betty, is I.S., influence of devoted deacons, Stephen Stone. Uh, when I think of Mike Palavik or David Emerson, we've got devoted deacons here. What did we have in chapter 6? We had a food fight. There was an argument about how the church was tending to some widows who needed some assistance. Some felt like they weren't getting uh, uh, what they wanted when they wanted it. And so the apostles said, let's uh, delegate this to some faithful guys, including Stephen and Philip. And uh, we'll make sure that the church takes care of that physical need s stands for stephen stone to death we find out about stephen in the context of the food fight uh, and we talk about his ministry and he's uh, violently killed and so we're seeing the level of the violence against christianity ratcheting up it's always been dangerous to be a christian in a lot of different ways and uh, then we go jesus is alive and we're in chapter eight today we'll finish that uh jack smith interprets this uh, statement a little differently than some of us. If you'd like to find out how he interprets it, please talk to him after the service. It's quite, uh, it's quite humorous, but I won't, uh, I won't go there now because I like working here. Uh, but uh, uh, abroad with uh, Philip last week in Samaria, verses 1 through 25, and this week in Gaza or on the road to Gaza. So we're going to finish chapter uh, 8 up today. So guess what? What happens next week? We're going to see the salvation of Saul, who changed his name to Paul, and who writes 13 New Testament books. That's a lot, Krista. 13 out of 27, that's almost 50%. This guy who's a professional Christian persecutor is, in fact, going to become one of the greatest apostles. All right, let's look at our passage again. Uh, let's start with a holy hitchhiker on a desert road. Philip's divine encounter with a... And Ethiopian VIP, look at verse 26. But in the aftermath of Philip going to Samaria, north of Jerusalem, preaching the gospel, seeing a lot of people in that city get saved. Uh, but in the aftermath of all that, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. Now, Philip didn't have angels talking to him every day. Uh, now, I have an angel that I talk to every day. Her name is Debbie. Okay. So the word angel, uh, angelos in the original just means messenger. And you can use it uh, for any messenger, but although quite often it's used for heavenly messengers, spirit beings that we, the Bible calls angels. Uh, and I'm 
assuming this is that kind of angel here. However, from here on out in this passage, there are several references to the Holy Spirit, who isn't an angel in the sense of a spirit being, but who is a messenger of God, of the plan of God as the third person of the Trinity. So it's possible, like verse 29 would be an example. Uh, Then the Spirit said to Philip. So we have an angel talking to Philip, and now the Spirit talking to Philip. And some commentators, and this is possible, have said, hey, rather than kind of translating verse 26 in a technical sense for an angel angel, which it could mean that, maybe we should just generically see this as a messenger of further explaining the passage as the Holy Spirit specifically. So just be aware that either, either one's possible. But either way, here's what we got, Blanche. We've got unique supernatural confirmation that God wants Philip to leave the aftermath of an effective, thriving revival in the biggest city in Samaria to go out to the middle of nowhere. You know, and you really need some direct input to do something like that because it doesn't make a lot of sense from the human viewpoint. I mean, there are no offering places, uh, offering plates, I should say, in desert places. I mean, the average preacher today wouldn't leave a thriving revival to go out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so Philip had, this wasn't human whim. I think I should just make a change or I'm getting tired of this. Uh, and it's interesting whether this is an angel, angel, or the Holy Spirit speaking to him, however it happened. Uh, that's supernatural. And yet it says in verse 27, so he got up and went. And uh, which means he got up and walked or maybe got on a horse and he rode uh, from Samaria to Jerusalem down to Hebron, made a sharp uh, right turn going to the uh, west and is on this desert road when he encounters the Ethiopian eunuch. Look at verse 27. So he got up and went and he just got up naturally, normally. There weren't angels carrying him. Uh, He got divine revelation, but now he's going to have to put some... uh, shoe leather, you know, to the command and obedience uh, to the word. So he got up and went. And there just happened to be uh, in the providence of God an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace. Candace, Derek, was a title like Pharaoh was for for the uh, queen mother of this kingdom. Now, Ethiopia today uh, is a different piece of real estate than what they called Ethiopia at this time. This is kind of upper Egypt where Sudan would be today is Ethiopia. But the point is, this guy's a big shot. He's a big government official, uh, and yet he has a heart for God. Uh, He's a court official, uh, secretary of treasury for Candace, the pharaoh slash slash the queen mother of the Ethiopians, in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So guess what? I'll show you a map. Yeah. Here's the map. Now, watch this. Um, last week, we had uh, Philip in Sebasti, right, in Samaria. And then he gets the word he needs to go on this desert road that actually goes from Jerusalem down to Hebron and then across to Gaza and then into Egypt. So he's up here, and he makes his way to Jerusalem. And at the same time, because he's going to go to Hebron and toward Gaza, the same time, this Ethiopian eunuch has been in Jerusalem to worship and his two-week vacation is over, so he's got to go back home. So they, they rendezvous. There was no intent except for the intent of the Spirit for this to happen. But in my notes say, how lucky could a young Jewish man get? We've got this Ethiopian VIP who's reading the Bible out loud, and he's reading Isaiah 53. That'd be like today, some guy reading John 3.16 out loud and saying, hey, 
hey, could you come, could you tell me what this means? He's going, yeah, I mean, after you kind of, kind of woke me up, I would faint if somebody did that, but it'd be great, you know. So it's just too good to be true here. And he was returning this uh, government official uh, sitting in his chariot and was reading from the prophet Isaiah. So he's brought some really cool reading material for his trip home, right? Uh, the, the, the TV set kind of in the back. And the, the, I always thought chariots, you know, I thought a chariot was a one-man deal, kind of an open cart, you know, in the back with a couple wheels, and you kind of had chariot races like Ben-Hur. But the chariot, this guy's riding, uh, Russell would have been like a Lexus chariot, would have had several rows of seat. He would have had his own driver. He would have been covered, probably had a guy fanning him. You know, this would have been the the, the, the uh, high class up uptown kind of stuff, uh, and so that's another reason Philip's probably happy. He's never been in such a nice vehicle before, so he gets to you know check it out. So um, he's reading from uh, the prophet Isaiah, and the Spirit in verse twenty nine says, "Holy Spirit says, go up and join this chariot. Just walk up there and introduce yourself, boy." And so Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. He's reading out loud. And he says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? What's going on there? Wow, man, you've got to love this. It's incredible. So we've got the holy hitchhiker on the desert road. And now we're going to see uh, this honest seeker's uh, question, which is going to be, how could I, unless somebody explained it to me? I mean, you got to love this. You know, uh and like I kiddingly said, um, verse 31, how could I understand it unless someone guides me? Uh, I think the Holy Spirit gives every believer something I'd call a grace apparatus for perception to basically understand the Scripture. Because watch this. The main things are plain things, right, Blanche? The main things are plain things. And they get repeated a lot. So, Krista, you don't have to know Greek or Hebrew have a good translation and a heart that really wants to know and serve God as a believer, I think he will allow you to basically understand what the deal is, right? Uh, on the other hand, Second Peter 3 says, there are some things hard to understand in Scripture. And so for that reason and others, you're always going to need some teachers and, and Bible preachers in, this, in the church. Uh, and that's what's happening here. Now watch this, though. If you as a believer, put your name in the blank, K. Massey, Scott Postlewaite, um, Jack Smith, Brad McCoy, if you really want to have um, the spiritual effects that Scripture should have on you as an individual, uh, you've got to process Scripture at a couple levels. You've got to understand what it means in context, and you've got to understand what that meaning means to you and your conduct. And those are really the two steps of Bible study, interpretation, application. What does the text mean in context? That's its meaning. And then the second question is, how does that meaning relate to me and my conduct and my attitudes and everything like that? So he's really asking a very profound question when he says, how could I understand this unless somebody guides me? And so he invited Philip to, to climb up and sit down with him. Now, at this point, uh, it's my pleasure to tell you that he's reading from Isaiah 53. And uh, before we talk about the meaning of Isaiah 53, I want to talk about the miracle of God preserving the text of Isaiah so you have what Isaiah wrote in an English translation in your Old Testament right now. Um, 
And we're going to, to do that, we've got to tell you about the Dead Sea Scrolls. What are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls were scrolls found in the Dead Sea. See? Like who's buried in Grant's tomb? Zane. Zane. Who's buried in Grant's tomb? Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, what color is a black box in an airplane? It's orange. That's a whole different thing. Yeah. The, uh, the Dead Sea is right there and Jerusalem's right there. And, uh, I know a guy who actually visited Cave One where they found the Isaiah Scroll in 1947. There he is. Who is that young guy? It's a good looking guy, isn't it? It's, it's nice. Yeah, it's many years ago. It was actually 2006. Can you believe that, Homer? Can you believe it's been nine years? That was nine years ago, Tom. But in the background there is Cave One. There are many, many caves in that area uh, where they found scroll, ancient scrolls. Uh, there's a museum in Jerusalem called the Shrine of the Book uh, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are displayed, some of them. And at the center of that, they have what looks like to be the top of a scroll and they have a facsimile, an exact facsimile of the prize of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were a cache, a group of uh, manuscripts that uh, contained every book in whole or in part, every book of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. The Essenes who were copying all this were too spiritual they have a book in their Bible that never mentions the name of God explicitly once, which Esther doesn't do because the book of Esther is saying God works in s slow, quiet, uh, providential ways. And so he's, uh, you know, the writer there's not mentioning God ex expressly to cause the reader to go, hey, God did that, God did that, God connected the dots. But anyway, these scenes, this group of Jewish people had copied every book of the Old Testament except for Esther and some other stuff. And just before the Romans came through in the first century to destroy the nation of Israel after the death of Christ, shortly after that, uh, they hid all their stuff in these caves. And because the humidity is, it's, it's, it's so minuscule. It's like, uh, it's very hot, but there's low humidity uh, in that area. Uh, the, the papyrus scrolls were preserved for 2,000 years until we found them. But, uh, yeah, let's go here. Now I need some volunteers. To show you how cool this is, uh, Riley, come here, buddy. I want you to stand uh, right about here, and I want you to hold that. Can you do that? This guy's a football player. He can do anything. Okay. Uh, the book of Isaiah that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading in a Greek translation was written in 700 B.C. by Isaiah. Okay, now, uh, Summer. Uh, you may have to stand on this. Now, uh, this is going to represent where we are now. We're, we're living in June 2015. Am I right? Did we get that right? Okay, now watch this. Isaiah was written in, in 700 B.C. Uh, the pulpit represents the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch are right here on the timeline. And the Ethiopian eunuch is reading the book of Isaiah, right? Now, let me ask you a question. Bailey, I want you to stand say about, right about here. This is, this is uh, Riley's sister. Now, let's go to, to 20th century, okay? 
Isaiah was written when? 700 B.C. Okay. Now, until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, Ken, the earliest copy, the earliest Hebrew copy we had that we could put our hands on, called extant. You actually can see it and touch it. It exists. You can put it in a museum somewhere. The earliest copy of Isaiah that we possessed, Hebrew manuscript, was dated, Masoretic text, at about 1000 A.D. Now, that's a long time, okay? We're talking about a 1700-year a, a period period from the original manuscript Isaiah, to our first copy. Now, we know that Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch had a translation of Isaiah here, right? Because they're reading it, discussing it. But when you've got that kind of situation, here's what happens. Conservatives, evangelicals like me, will say, God inspired the text of Isaiah, therefore God will preserve the text. And so the earliest copy we've got will be a good representation of what Isaiah said. There may be some small changes, but nothing significant will be lost. God supernaturally inspires and supernormally preserves, okay? Liberal critical scholars will say, good night. In fact, they'll use different terminology than that. But they'll say, you people think he wrote this thing in 700 B.C. You don't have a stinking copy until 700, 1,700 years later, there's no way a guy can copy the original and then somebody will copy the copy and somebody will copy that copy and you end up here. There's no way what this Masoretic text is saying, Isaiah said, is anything like what the original manuscript says or said, right? And then April. April's going to ride in on the white horse. Then we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. I want you on this side, the, the Old Testament side of the pulpit. Right, right about here. In 1947, Cave 1. And also, by the way, there was a lot of talk about, the liberals all said, because the first uh, 39 chapters of Isaiah had a certain theme and then uh, chapters 40 through 66 had a different theme. There were actually two different Isaiah's written documents, and they weren't the same author, and somebody stitched them together later. But watch this, Russell. In 47, the Dead Sea Scrolls, DSS stands for Dead Sea Scrolls, were discovered, and the jewel of that collection is called the Isaiah Scroll. The Isaiah Scroll looked like it had just been written by Isaiah. It is pristine, okay? You cannot believe that uh, the scenes copied it in about 100 B.C., so that's over 2,000 years ago, right? It's pristine. The, the ink is bright, easy to read, if you know uh, Hebrew the way they used the script back then, which I don't know that kind of script. Uh, but here's the thing. Boom. We suddenly went from, watch this, Bailey. We went from our first copy we had, we couldn't get our hands on, existing here, dated here. We went back more than a thousand years closer to the original. We're very close to the original, historically speaking now, as opposed to what we were, right? Now, here's the big question. We conservatives have assumed this essentially said what Isaiah said in 700 BC, but we assume that on faith. Now we've got a much closer document to the original. And the big question was, 
How's this one going to compare to that one? If you come back next week, I will tell you. No. You're done. No, actually, I'm going to tell you. But I want to use a PowerPoint. Yeah. Well, I generate some hot air, you know, so. Yeah. So have I gotten your attention? Have I perplexed you? Now watch this. Yeah, here's our original status quo. We've got Isaiah written in 700 B.C. And for us, the earliest copy we could get our hands on of Isaiah, what Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch are talking about, the earliest Hebrew copy we had, was dated about 1000 A.D. Okay, that's the first copy that we actually get our hands on. That's uh, until 1947. So we've got a 1,700-year gap. Now, that doesn't totally bother me because I'm quite sure God preserves his word. But you can see how anybody who doesn't have a tendency to kind of believe is going to have a problem with that. But then what happened? Whoop. That's the wrong. Oh, shoot. Close your eyes. Uh-oh. All these computer problems are always my fault, and they really are. And they're not David's. Yeah. So get what happened. We found the Isaiah scroll. Not we personally, but you know the scientists found the Isaiah scroll dated about 100 B.C. Now that's not the first copy. We got this first copy. But the big question is what? How does this one compare to that one? Right? That's a big question. What were the liberals assuming? Going to be totally different. What were the conservatives? assuming it's going to be essentially the same right so that's the big question how close is the wording between the old first copy and the new first copy you can get your hands on well liberal critical scholarship really has not recovered from this but they were essentially verbatim it was unbelievable man and uh, gleason archer who unfortunately uh, fortunately for him was taken to be with the lord recently but it was a uh, a well-known evangelical scholar said, even though the copy of Isaiah, the Isaiah scroll, discovered in Qumran Cave 1 near the Dead Sea in 47, is more than a thousand years earlier than the oldest manuscript previously known, the Masoretic text. The two are essentially identical, word for word. The differences that do exist are primarily variations in the spelling of names. Instead of Russell, S-U-S-S-E-L-L, uh, one of them says Russell, S-R-U-S-S-E-L. But we all know who Russell is, right? Even though one guy, it's a variation, you know. In Louisiana, they spell it that way. So that's the background you need to know about the Dead Sea Scrolls and why God preserves his word. But let's talk about the meaning of this. The, uh, the honest seeker, the Ethiopians reading this passage, he doesn't know he's probably got the most important passage about Jesus in the whole Old Testament. If he's reading it, doesn't know what it means, please tell me what it means. Here's the book of Isaiah, uh, and we're going to be in Isaiah 53, which is prophecy about the coming Savior and the salvation that will be available in God's anointed, God's Messiah, God's Savior. And we come to Isaiah 53. Let's turn to Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament. And we'll do a real quick survey of this incredible passage, which again, all 66 chapters, those who wanted to have... Uh, First uh, uh, Isaiah and Second Isaiah and two different books that somebody sits together in 100 B.C. They're all together in the same scroll, exactly like the Masoretic text had indicated. No problems. A few proper names with an extra L or, or uh, 
whatever, but easily understandable. Nothing's lost. Isaiah 53. When we talk about Isaiah 53, we really mean Isaiah 52. Verse 13 through the end of chapter 53. Everybody talks about this. Uh, gives you the shorthand version, Isaiah 53. But it breaks down into three parts. First, we have a bottom line. Regardless of how impossible it's going to look and seem, uh, God's Savior, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be exalted. Uh, let's just read verses 13 and 14. Not of Isaiah 53, but of the chapter just before that, because this passage actually starts a couple of verses into the previous chapter. So look at verse 13 and 14 of chapter 52. Behold, my God says to the prophet, my servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior, will prosper. Ultimately, he will be high and lifted up. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess kind of thing, right? But it's going to be a rough ride to get there. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, when you were enslaved in Egypt, Egyptian bondage and other things that had happened to them, so his appearance would be marred more than any man, his form more than any of the sons of men. So the bottom line is he's going to win. He's going to be not just the issue of salvation, but the whole agent of God's plan for everything is going to be focused on this Messiah, uh, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the heart of this is found in verses 1 through 9. The process leading to the final exaltation of the Messiah will include unbelievable suffering. And let's look at verse 2 through 7. For he, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ as we know him, grew up before God the Father like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. Even though, humanly speaking, he looked like an average Palestinian Jew. He was not handsome by any human measure. He had no stately form of majesty that we should look upon him and be impressed. That's all the people that play Jesus in the movies are always, always too good looking because Jesus is an average looking guy. And as an average looking guy, I can relate to that. You're welcome. Uh, we had no appearance that would be attracted to him. He didn't stand out as a handsome guy, right? Because there are more important things than that. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one ultimately from whom men would hide their face because he'd be so brutalized before and during the crucifixion. He was despised, we did not esteem him. And yet surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves, humanity, generally uh, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God as a bad guy, somebody who got in our way, a social reformer who didn't understand how the system worked, that kind of thing. But verse 5, the Messiah was pierced through for our transgressions. Everything that could keep Mike Palovic out of heaven, everything that could keep Blanche Britton out of heaven, and more importantly, everything that could keep Brad McCoy out of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ died for on the cross. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our spiritual well-being, our salvation fell upon him, and by his scourging were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord, God the Father, Yahweh, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Our sin debt imputed to Christ and judged. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. But he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter. And like a sheep silent before his shears did not open his mouth. That's the exact verse that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading. 
Now look at verse 10. Regardless of how it looks, he's going to be exalted. The process will involve unbelievable suffering, uh, and yet he's going to perfectly fulfill God's righteous standings, and his death and resurrection will cover human sin. Uh, look at verse 10. But the Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, was pleased, not happy, but judicially satisfied to crush him. How can God uh, accept uh, Janet Deeg into heaven without compromising the standards? Somebody's got to pay her sin debt. And Jesus did that for her. But Yahweh, God the Father, was pleased, judicially satisfied to crush him as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice, putting him to grief since he would offer himself as a guilt offering. And yet, God the Father will see His offspring, His Son, the Messiah, after His death, resurrection. In other words, He'll prolong His days supernaturally. And that's when He's going to ultimately prosper. The good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in and through the Savior's hand. Death and resurrection. As a result of the anguish of His soul, God the Father will see it and be satisfied. Propitiation is the satisfaction of righteous wrath by payment or an offering. By his knowledge, by coming to faith in him, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will, in fact, bear their iniquities. Go back to, uh, to Acts chapter 8. That's the passage, Savannah, that this Ethiopian eunuch just happens to be reading uh, as Philip is running up and jumping into the chariot. You just couldn't be that lucky, right, Tom? Uh, you can't get that lucky. And so you see verse uh, 34. Please tell me who's the prophet talking about? Talking about himself or somebody else? And then verse 35, look, Summer says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from Isaiah 53, he preached Jesus to him. You've heard about the Passover? That's talking about Jesus. You heard about the Day of Atonement? That's talking about Jesus. Uh, you've heard about... Uh, Psalm 22 and being stretched out and nailed and having Gentiles make fun of him. That's talking about Jesus. You've read about Daniel 12 and the resurrection. You know who resurrects people? That's Jesus. He preached Jesus to him. This sounds pretty familiar, uh, Rick Schonemeyer, to something that happens in Luke 24. Remember when this mysterious stranger starts walking with some pilgrims uh, just outside of Jerusalem the day of the resurrection? And they don't understand and visualize, understand who that stranger is, but it's Jesus. And he explains, they say, hey, we thought this guy was the Messiah, and now the Romans have killed him, and it's all over. And this mysterious stranger took the scriptures and said, no, it had to happen. And I got a feeling Jesus that day probably started with Isaiah 53. And this is where they start, too, uh, on this very amazing encounter. So, uh, realize, uh, man, this was like, shooting fish in a barrel, as they used to say. And you don't hear that very often anymore, probably because it's illegal to shoot fish in a barrel. Uh, uh, I know you can't uh, do a lot of things you used to be able to do, but uh, it's not all bad. But, uh, you know, the Old Testament prophets talked about the suffering Messiah and the reigning Messiah, and now you got Philip right after the suffering Messiah had prophecies have been fulfilled, and he is loaded for bear. He's got a lot to tell. And when you really analyze who and what and when and where all these things were going to happen centering on Jesus and the plan of salvation. Boom. Uh, it's all there for you. And uh, no doubt uh, Philip covered a lot of that material. So we've seen the holy hitchhiker. We've seen the honest seekers question. Now let's look at a happy and a joyous new Christian. 
in verses 36 through 40. Uh, enthusiasm like this shouldn't be discouraged, but look at verse 36. As they went along the road, they came to some water, uh, uh, Wadi El Hesi, uh, probably no doubt outside of Gaza. And the eunuch said, look, Agua, what prevents me from being baptized? As a eunuch, under the Old Testament law, you couldn't become a full proselyte to Judaism. You could be saved through faith, but you couldn't become a full proselyte to Judaism. And they did that, not according to Old Testament scripture, but according to tradition, by baptizing with water in a mikvah, uh, Gentiles who wanted to be baptized. Uh, this guy probably had asked for that and said, sorry, you don't qualify, you're a eunuch. But the New Testament church, uh, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe, right? Uh, doesn't have those kind of restrictions. And so I think he's excited about getting baptized. Plus, why is he getting baptized now? Where's, it, where's he headed, Sonia? He's headed home. Where are they going to baptize him there? There's nobody to baptize him there. There's no church there. There's nothing there, right? So there's a lot of reasons he's getting baptized right now. And we tend to think, and next week when we baptize, I'm going to emphasize, you know, I think immersion is the mode in, in Christ. Uh, was on the cross and buried and rose again. And I think the New Testament believer affirms his uh, identification with that. Um, but, uh, and so we tend to emphasize, and I think it's fine to say in the same way, same way a wedding ring is kind of a testimony of my connection to Debbie Walker McCoy. Uh, water baptism is a way to testify, uh, you know, publicly of somebody's faith in the crucified, uh, buried and risen Savior. And yet there's really nobody to watch this baptism except Philip and the, and the Spirit, right, basically. So I think another function of baptism, uh, which meets uh, the need here, is just a personal act of uh, confession and identification with the death and burial of Christ, whether it's public uh, setting or not, because this isn't a public setting. But he sees water, he's excited, he wants to be baptized. Verse 37 says, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Now, my Bible's got brackets around those verses. Uh, there are some Bibles that don't even have verse 37. Put it in the footnote underneath. Uh, most of your Bibles, maybe not all of them, have some kind of a footnote or marker just telling you. And, and Ryrie in his study Bible just says, most manuscripts do not contain this verse. Well, at last count, and this was literally through like six months ago, we have 5,824 extant Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. That's the exact number. Everybody says 5,000. They're sloppy. 5,824, uh, if you want to be exact, uh, according to Daniel Wallace. Uh, and he counted them all. Uh, uh, the vast majority of the manuscripts we've got that testify to the text of Acts don't have this verse at all. It appears late 2nd century, early 3rd uh, century, in one particular section of the ancient world in a few manuscripts. And I think, you've, in my opinion, uh, Luke didn't write that. And that's not inspired, in my opinion. I could be wrong. But I don't think it was an evil uh, insertion. I think it was an innocent insertion. How does this kind of thing happen? I think that, obviously, uh, before I baptize somebody, I'm going to talk to them and make sure they can articulate their faith in Christ Make sure they understand that water baptism doesn't wash away their sins. It's a picture of the washing away of sin, but it doesn't wash away their sins. And as much as I can establish they want to do that for the right reasons. You know, that's kind of what you do as a preacher with baptismal candidates. I'm sure Philip did that with, with this guy, but the text doesn't mention it. 
I think Luke assumes, he just shorthands it. He's not telling you everything you could say about it, guys. It's assuming the reader, well, Philip's a good guy. He's going to make sure this guy really believed and understands the water is not going to wash away his sins and wants to do it for the right reasons. And I'm sure he does. But he doesn't mention it. So what probably happened is somewhere in the late 2nd century, some scribe's copying this, and he's probably a pastor, and he's saying, hmm, it doesn't mention that Philip kind of processed this baptismal candidate. But I want to do that. So in a margin, not the text he's copying, but in the margin of that manuscript or that papyrus he's copying on that scroll, he just writes down, hey, a good thing for me to say would be, and he says, uh, in fact, what I would have done, what Philip probably did, was if you believe with all your heart, you know, uh, you may, that kind of thing. He probably wrote it down just as a comment, commentary to himself. And then 100 years later, somebody's copying that manuscript. The guy that put the comment there on the side isn't alive anymore. And he said, whoops, the guy must have left that out. So let's slide that in there. That's probably what happened. Okay. There's nothing wrong with it. I think the theology is fine. Uh, I'm just telling you, when you look at the manuscript evidence, there's, there's good reasons to doubt that is part of what Luke actually wrote and was inspired. But here's the big thing I want to emphasize before we close here in a moment. Um, this guy's excited. He's happy. He's like a kid with a new toy. I mean, uh, a lot of us get over our initial salvation and kind of get kind of used to it. But this guy apparently had not gotten to that point. And so uh, he orders the chariot stop. He gets baptized and things go on. But here's the thing. Um, I say a happy new Christian affirms his faith, right? Watch this. Carol, there's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is based on happenings. Happiness is positive feelings. In this case, it's euphoric, happy feelings about positive, pleasant circumstances. This guy was looking for God as a God-fearer who couldn't be a full proselyte. He'd been to Jerusalem. He believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now he's found out that the promised Messiah has come. He's Jesus of Nazareth. He died on the cross, rose again. He's trusted him. He's rejoicing in assurance of salvation. He wants to be water baptized. He's a happy, happy Christian. Okay? But guess what? If um, you... uh, happened to be in Charleston, South Carolina today, and your pastor and, what, eight other people were shot at a prayer meeting? There's not a lot of happiness there. Have, have any of you people seen the reaction of those marvelous brothers and sisters in Christ to that situation? Have you, did you see what they were saying about that whole situation? They weren't saying, let's go out in the streets and burn stuff and kill people and show everybody how mad we are. They're, for, their, their hearts are broken and they're saying that God, we pray God will forgive you. We pray you'll find the Lord. Uh, we don't know how we're going to uh, continue to operate, but God will give us the strength. Uh, you know, the guy that did this was a horrible and is a horrible monster. Uh, obviously a racist. Was he a Christian? Did he claim to be a Christian? He wasn't just anti-black. He was obviously anti-Christian. If you're just anti-black and not anti-Christian, you'd go to the inner city and shoot people. You wouldn't go into a church, sit with the pastor. And I always want to, want, I always want to know where the pastor is. He walks in and says, where's the pastor? And everybody's always happy to shut these people to the pastor. You know, is that, that's part of our job. We deal with those kind of people, you know. And then now we frisk them, you know, before we talk to them. But, but I mean, uh, yeah, so he's obviously anti-black, anti-Christian. The media doesn't play up the, play up the anti-Christian thing because we know that's not a problem, right? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's amazing. 
But this guy was happy. There's not a lot of happiness, but there's real profound joy. The difference between happiness and joy is happiness is totally based on your circumstances. If you have positive circumstances, you can be happy. Hey, when OU gets beat by OSU, which only happens like once every 10 years, I'm happy, happy, happy. I mean, it's just happy. I'm real happy. I'm still happy that that happened. I'm happy about that. But uh, even the other nine times out of ten, we can have some joy, can't we, Derek? It's not easy, but we can have joy. Because joy is, and it doesn't necessarily mean euphoria. It can go from ecstatic to stability based on your circumstances and your personality. But it's much more profound than that. It's the tranquility of heart and soul that's found when you're resting in Jesus Christ. So, you know, all of us go through good times and bad times and have difficult circumstances. We can't always be happy but we've got to remember that our faith is not based on feelings. It's based on uh, facts. And we've got some uh, things we can rejoice in every day, regardless of uh, our circumstances, because of who and what Jesus Christ is. All right. So now look at this. Verse 39 and 40, and we'll finish. Uh, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him. He's gone. But he went on his way back home rejoicing. So that's the joy of his salvation. That's more than his happiness previously. And Philip found himself at Azotus. We'll show you that in a map here in a second. And as he passed through, going towards Caesarea, he kept preaching Jesus. Now, uh, I've always assumed, and I still do, that when we read the Spirit snatched Philip away, I think there was a supernatural thing where he moved through time and space about 75 miles because either Philip and or the Ethiopian eunuch were big talkers, and they would have stood there and just talked for like three days, and they both had stuff to do. Uh, so I have no problem just saying it's a supernatural thing. I think that's what it's saying. However, John Stott, who is a British evangelical, uh, cites another famous uh, evangelical pastor of a previous generation, uh, G. Campbell Morgan, this way. Uh, and I thought it was interesting, and it's possible. Uh, he says in his commentary, some understand this snatching away as a supersonic ride undertaken with miraculous velocity. He's quoting a commentator. And I would say like 99% of evangelicals assume that, not just most or some, he says. And to be sure, the Greek verb took away normally means to snatch or seize as in the rapture passage, 1 Thessalonians 4. But I, this is Stott, uh, think along with G. Campbell Morgan, quote, it is not at all necessary that this should be accompanied, uh, counted as a miracle. I'm never anxious to read miracles in where they are not any more than I'm anxious to rule out miracles where they are in. At any rate, the eunuch did not see him anymore. So I thought it was interesting to see an evangelical say, uh, maybe the spirit just kind of whispered to him, say, get, get out of there and start walking north. But it sounds to me like it's a supernatural thing to separate them because this guy's got things to do. Now, by the way, Irenaeus who is a second century Christian writer and speaker, he says, and we don't know how he got his information, that this Ethiopian eunuch went home, continued to function in the government, but started a church, preached Jesus, and several hundred came to faith as a result of this. So he's got things to do. Uh, Philip's got things to do. And they separate uh, as brothers in Christ. So let me go back to where we started. Uh, the conventional wisdom and popular opinion today, CW is conventional wisdom, PO in this context means popular opinion, is going to say that uh, Riley Walls and Jack Smith and Russell Ponder and Rick Schoenemeyer and Brad McCoy, especially Brad McCoy because he's a preacher, uh, 
we're all kind of exclusive and we're evil and we're racist and we don't like people, we're haters. But contrary to all that, the New Testament church from the get-go has always been mega inclusive. And I would just say, if you need to prove that to somebody or that comes up and you want to elucidate what the Bible actually says, I think maybe the best place to go to with the average person would be John 3.16. It doesn't say God so loved white people who have good educations that he gave his only begotten son. That's not what it says. It doesn't say anything but God so loved the cosmos, the world, so much that he gave his son that whosoever believeth on him. So salvation is available to any white, black, rich, or poor. Uh, no one's so bad they can't have it. No one's so good they don't need it. And it comes through faith alone in Christ alone. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. I believe you died for my sins and rose again. I trust in you alone for my salvation. I want you to be my Savior. And then as you embrace him as Savior, of course you follow him as, as Lord. I mean, he gives you every capacity, every motivation to do that. But salvation is not about what we do for God. It's about what he's done for us. It's not let's make a deal. It's not, God, you give me salvation. I'll give you this, that, and the other. We're not giving anything to God. Empty hand that receives the merits of Christ. Father, help us not just to believe this, but to live it out. Local churches tend to clump based on a lot of different factors. But the capital C, true New Testament church, transcends cultures and countries and colors. And I pray you'd make us colorblind and cultureblind in that sense of connecting with, praying for, affirming, encouraging, and partnering with as you lead us to do so. Uh, other believers outside our personal uh, playground or our box. I thank you. TBF is a little microcosm of that because we've got a lot of different believers from a lot of different denominational backgrounds united by faith in Christ. Help us to celebrate that and to enjoy that and uh, to think about that the way you'd have us to think. I thank you for each one who's here. I pray a blessing of your word on each one of us as we process this. And it's not just information, but it becomes transforming truth to direct us to walk with you and to your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.